We will be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help as we dive in. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate these texts to us. We pray that we'd be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our minds, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' good name, amen. Well, as we jump into this passage today, I want to make one introductory comment, and that is that this passage extensively quotes from the Old Testament. And I love that because it shows us how important and how valuable the Old Testament is, and also the wonderful and profound thing that God has done by bringing together Jews and Gentiles in the same body. You may recall that uh, the Christians that Peter is writing to here are likely scattered Gentile believers, and he profoundly shows them time after time after time how they fit into God's wonderful plan of redemption. And surely, since nearly all of us come from the Gentile part of God's family, it should be a profound encouragement for us as well. Let's look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Now, this first phrase, as you come to him, it talks about drawing near to God. It comes up in other places in Scripture, but the idea that Peter is driving for here, it's a little bit complex to understand. Some people look at this and they say, okay, well, that's the initial coming to God when you become a Christian, that what happens at justification. But I think the tense of the verb that he uses here actually speaks to a continual coming to God. So think of it like this. We came to God in the beginning when we were born again, but then we continue to come back to Jesus because of all that he has to offer. And Peter lays forth some of who he is and what he's done in that very next phrase. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And so Taken together, that gives us our first point today, that Jesus is entirely unique and the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Now, those phrases that he used to talk about Jesus there, they're two strands of prophecy that he's weaving together into this masterful rope. You see it here, and then it'll come up again in uh, verses 6 through 8. And what he's talking about here is the foundation stone that is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, and the rejected capstone in Psalm 118:22. <clears throat> Jesus applies the latter reference to himself in Mark 12, and then Peter quotes it uh, again in Acts chapter 4 when he is before the Sanhedrin. And so the idea here is Jesus is the foundation on which the church is built, the cornerstone, but he is also the capstone into which it grows. And this concept here of the rock stone imagery, as it's sometime call, uh, sometimes called, uh, is very important in Scripture. You find it in these examples, but you also see it later in this passage. You'll be quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. Uh, it comes up again in Isaiah 51. There's also the supernatural stone that is spoken of in Daniel chapter 3, verse uh, 24, and also the burdensome stone of Zechariah 12, 3. Uh, it's also possible that this rock stone imagery was used as a messianic title among the Jews as well as among Christians. 
And I point this out to you for two reasons. Number one, because it shows this contiguity between the Old and the New Testament. Because there are many people today, scholars, if you want to call them that, some literary professors and so on, they try to attack this every chance that they get. They basically try to convince Christians that there are two gods in the Bible. There's this one God of the Old Testament that presents in a certain way, and then there's this other God in the New Testament that presents a different way. And friends, that's just not true. And passages like this remind us of this. There is one Word of God, there is one God in that Bible, and there is contiguity between the Old and New Testament. Jesus is the prophesied Messiah that historic Christianity has always held him out to be, and passages like this remind us of it. Now, the second reason I would point that out to you is because this is yet another reminder of why we can trust our Bibles. The Bible is not simply a mishmash collection of fortune cookie wisdom and inspiring moral narratives. It is an inspired Word of God, a virtual library, library, 66 books that tell one big story that all point to the redemptive work of Christ. And so when we see this on display and we see Peter quote extensively from the Old Testament, we need to be strengthened, we need to be bolstered, we need to be reminded that our faith is not anchored in thin air, but it is anchored in the timeless and tested Word of God that's been around for thousands and thousands of years. So as we think about the greatness and the uniqueness of Jesus, let's also think about the greatness and uniqueness of His Word that bears His witness. Now, let's take a look at verse 5. Because after laying down these profound truths about Jesus, Peter then shifts his focus from him to the hearers themselves, and he makes a startling conclusion. And I want to go ahead and give you our second point to make sure that we don't miss it. And that is that when we come to Jesus, we take on both a new identity and new activity. Let's look at it together. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So here in the first part of the passage, Jesus is the living stone to which we come and we keep coming because of all he has to offer. But now he's saying that anyone who comes to that Jesus, well, they are like living stones as well. And they're being built into a spiritual house. The way I like to think about this if you've had children around your feet or you have children around your feet now, it is like divinely empowered Legos. We all know what those Legos are like, those little blocks that stack together. Well, in the way that God describes it, each one of us, we're like those little blocks. We're like living stones and we've been carefully crafted, uniquely gifted, and God is building us together one at a time, immaculately, uh, designed as he has done so, and we have many, many purposes. And this would have been very, very profound to this original audience because <coughs> they would have had the context of the temple looming large in their background. Whether they were from a Jewish or a Gentile uh, background, they would have known the centrality of the temple up to this point in the story of God 
And now he's saying, listen, we're replacing that temple with Jesus. And now all the people that Jesus is bringing to himself, he's building them into a new spiritual house. This would have been amazing to these folks. I like what one writer has to say about it. He says this, when we come to Jesus, not the city of Jerusalem, we come to the living stone. When we come to Jesus, not to Judaism, we come into God's kingdom. When we come to Jesus, not the ornate temple, we become God's spiritual house. And then eventually what he talks about, the holy priesthood. So what Peter is doing here is he's taking the highest concepts, the highest language, the highest authority that they would have experienced in the, wow, there's the presence of God. And he's saying now God is done with that and that presence of God is going to rest inside of God's people. This living stone is calling together other like living stone people and he's going to build them into the spiritual house and that's where God is going to dwell. Now think about how important this would have been to this early group of people. Displaced from their families, displaced from their homes, cast away, far away from the temple that would have been very important. And now God is saying to them, listen, you are going to be where I dwell. You are going to be built into a spiritual house. And it's almost as if he is saying, I am putting you at the very center of what I'm doing in the world. Now, not, of course, above Jesus and so on, but, but you're going to be at the epicenter. I'm going to dwell with you, and I'm going to change the world through you. Think about what a profound encouragement that would have been to these people that would have literally been running for their lives in the highways and hedges of the area that they were in. It would have been profoundly encouraging. Now, fast forward to us today. It should have a similar encouragement, shouldn't it? Because some of us feel very common. Some of us feel not very gifted. Some of us feel like we're just kind of on the outskirts of Christianity and the outskirts of life. But friend, remember this. You are part of what God is building into this spiritual house. You have been uniquely crafted, uniquely gifted. You have been carved in such a way with gifts and talents that you will sit on the figurative wall, so to speak, right next to your brothers and sisters. And as the glory of God shines through us, it will radiate the good news of Jesus Christ. Friends, this should be an encouragement to us that as we continue going to that living stones, that living stone, we will be like living stones that will be built into a spiritual house as well. But that's not all. Let's look on. It also says to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, again, this priesthood idea is one that comes up time and time again in the Bible. It, of course, began with Aaron in the Old Testament. And Aaron stood kind of as a mediator between sinful people and a holy God. And in some ways, he functioned as an intermediary in that way. Now, of course, that priesthood was to be temporary because who ultimately fulfills it? 
Jesus himself. He becomes our ultimate high priest. But again, in a similar way that he says that, you know, Jesus is this, but you guys are going to be like this. That, that's part of what he's getting at here. And when he says that, that we are now a holy priesthood, this would have been mind-blowing to them. Because what was the, of all the things that the priest did, what was the primary coup de grace, so to speak, the piece de resistance of what it meant to be a priest? It meant that they have access to God directly. And so now Peter is saying, because of the full and finished work of Jesus, we can go directly to God through Christ. And think about all the implications that that would have had for them and for us, these people, fearing for their lives. They don't have to call a friend to pray for them. They don't have to send a message. They can pray directly themselves. The same is true for us today. And think about how much struggle and difficulty that we've all had over the past year plus that many are still enduring. Friends, we have access to the one who can help us most to the creator of the universe. This should encourage us. This should comfort us. This should challenge us. And we should celebrate the fact that we, like these early Christians, through the full and finished work of Jesus, are now a holy priesthood. We can go to God directly with our needs. We can go to God directly for comfort. And he will help. Now, Peter also illuminates a particular activity that we as holy priests should be about, and it's to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices would have been all kinds of things, prayer, thanksgiving, praise, repentance. You even remember uh, the sacrifice of animals at that point in redemptive history. Obviously, we don't participate in that anymore. But in the New Testament, the kind of sacrifices that are being offered are these spiritual sacrifices. The New Testament talks about offering faith in Philippians 2, a fragrant offering, our gifts to God in Philippians 4, your bodies as living sacrifices in Romans 12, a sacrifice of praise that could be our singing, that could be our testimonies that we give about God in Hebrews 13, 15. And so when we think about all these things, we need to think about the fact that we weren't just gifted this new identity, but we were gifted new activity. And friends, out of gratitude, we should seek to live all of our lives, as Tozer said, within the smile of God. We want to walk away from sin. We want to walk further into Christ's likeness out of gratitude and out of an understanding of the great mercy that has been shown to us in Christ. So let me ask you two questions this morning. Number one, do you know that you're part of this house that's being built? Do you know that you're a living stone? Do you know that you are part of this holy priesthood that God has desired would bring him spiritual sacrifices? Do you know that in a way today that changes you. Oh, friends, if you don't, I hope that this message would help you take the next step in that direction. And the second question is, how's that going and living that out? My guess is that if you're like me and every other Christian, it's a mixed bag. You got some wins you can point to this past week and you got some real losses as well.
So can I encourage you today to come to the Lord with your sin, to come to the Lord with your burdens and say, Lord, please help me with this. I want next week to be better than this week. I want to bring you more praise next week than I did this week. I want to pray more. I want to think more about the great and deep things of God next week than I did this week. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that is mine in Christ and give me grace to live an even more pleasing life to you next week. Friends, the Lord will hear that prayer. The Lord will help you. And when you fail, which you will, none of us are perfect, the Lord will receive you as a son or daughter and welcome you home. So friends, let's live into this new identity. Let's practice this new activity. And let's continue to hear the word of God. Let's pick it back up in verse 6. Now here, Peter opens the aperture a little bit wider. And he returns to the stone imagery and pulls in another Old Testament quote. Now, we'll dig into all that in a moment. But as he does this, particularly in verse 8, <coughs> he gets into what is historically a, a pretty thorny, difficult doctrine for folks to kind of wrap their heads around. Uh, it can be hard to talk about, hard to understand. And before we get into that, I want to give us just a little bit of help here about good Bible study when it comes to this idea or any other uh, difficult idea. It's very important always that we pay attention to the context into which the writer is speaking. Now, what is, what is the context? What is the big idea? What is the main thrust of what Peter is trying to do here? It's to encourage these people. It's to comfort these people. And though he is teaching doctrine along the way, his big modus operandi is to comfort them with who Jesus is and who they are in Jesus. And that's important for us to understand because when he talks about this concept here of things being destined in the future, what he's saying to them on the whole is that even the evil and the horrible things that have been perpetrated against them, that that is somehow part of the plan of God. Now, God is not responsible for those people that have persecuted them. They made their own choices. They drove them away. They were uh, mean and horrible and, and murderous toward their families. But God somehow is sovereign over that, and He's going to use that as part of His plan in a way that perhaps we understand in this life and perhaps we don't. So that is the context into which Peter says what he says, and when we study the Bible, it is always imperative that we read the verses before it, we read the verses after it, and we make sure we understand what the author is trying to communicate. It's a paramount importance. Now, with that said, let's jump in. Verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, <coughs> Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So he's encouraging them. He's saying, listen, uh, just like Isaiah said, this is a quote from Isaiah 28, 16. Jesus is the cornerstone on which you should build your life. And if you build your life on him, you will not be disappointed. You will not be ashamed. And it's really interesting here without getting too uh, Greek nerd that the way that he talks about this, he uses a double negative in the subjunctive mood 
to make an emphatic negation, that's a mouthful, to refer to the future. And what he's getting at here is he's saying, never indeed will they ever be ashamed. So not only will you not be ashamed now if you put your faith in Jesus, he will never let you down. He will never leave you hanging. He will care for you till the end and to glory. So with that being true, ancient Christians, modern Christians, why would we seek to build our lives on any other stone but the living stone that is Christ? It's complete folly and foolishness to build our lives on our career, on how good we are at our sport, on where we live and what zip code and what school our kids go to, who our parents might be. Our foundation must be, should always be, only the living stone that is Christ. Think about what that meant to these people that it had everything else in their lives stripped away. Think about what that should mean for us today. Oh, friends, may we be comforted, may we be challenged, may we be changed by what Peter is saying to us here by quoting the ancient words of Isaiah. Verse 7, <clears throat> so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now that second quotation there, you'll see it if you're reading a, uh, whatever kind of Bible you got, e-Bible e on your phone or paper Bible, you'll see these quotation marks. Uh, and that is a quotation there from Isaiah 14 or excuse me, Isaiah 8, verse 14, Isaiah 8, 14. And the question that, that we kind of get into here is, so what is he talking about being destined? And there's a lot of debate about that. <coughs> but then also, that practically, what do we do with that? So let's answer the first question first. Well, I mean, to me, if I'm being intellectually honest with the text, uh, it, it appears, it, just like what I said before, that that uh, disobedience is destined to be part of the plan of God. I think it's pretty obvious. There's plenty of disobedience all around us. And so the question there becomes is, well, how can that be? How could God destine that there would be disobedience and stumbling, and yet somehow we know He's holy? And how, how it, it, yes, <laughs> it is complicated. It is mysterious. But the Bible teaches both of those things. There's clearly a destining that happens, but then there's also God is not directly involved in that. And clearly, we have a measure of freedom as humans. And so these things are mysterious. And I think that if you read across the scope of church history, you're going to find people that are a lot smarter than us, that they're going to put forward ideas about this, but at the end of the day, the track eventually runs out and we have to go, you know what? We're just going to have to trust God with this. We're going to have to trust that the scriptures teach what they teach. And we're going to have to trust that, that he knows what he's doing. It's his planet. It's his creation. And we're going to have to trust him. And I like what Wayne Grudem says in his commentary on 1 Peter because he, he kind of draws this together. He says this, <coughs> if we ask, <coughs> excuse me, 
how God can destine that something happen through the willful choice of His creatures, yet He Himself remain free from blame and not be the author of sin in the sense of actually doing wrong Himself, then we approach Paul's questions in Romans 9, 19. Why does he still find fault? For, for who can resist His will? Yet here, Scripture gives us back no answer except to say, but who are you, a man, to answer back to God? And he's right. There's a sense in which here we're not going to understand all this, and that's okay because we aren't God, and he's God, and he's been God forever, and he will be God forever. And in the same way that we trust him with our salvation, in the same way that we trust Him with the care of our families and our livelihoods and so on, we trust Him when we don't fully understand how all this shakes out. But here's what else I know. There's definitely some application we can make of this, even in light of the mystery that's here. If you're here and you don't yet know Jesus Christ, friend, my sincere appeal to you today would be that you would come to know Him that you would admit that you're a sinner, that you would believe in the perfect life, the substitute's death, and the glorious resurrection of Jesus, and that you would commit your life to follow Him. We want you to be a part of what God is doing in the world. We want you to be, as the Bible talks about, to be saved. And if that strikes a chord with you today and arrests you perhaps even in an unexpected way, then we would encourage you, shoot us an email, refugefranklin at gmail.com, and we want to talk to you about beginning a journey with Jesus. Now, the second application that I would make here is if we've already made that turn, friends, we need to be overcome with the thankfulness of the grace of God, that God and His rich mercy reached down to us and He saved us, that we now have this honor of those who believe. And we will never be put to shame. If all of our possessions were taken away, like it would have been for these early Christians, we are still not ashamed. Because this life is temporary and tiny and eternity is forever. And God is with us and for us in Christ. And we need to be thankful. And we need to be understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus. And speaking of which, Peter has just a couple more things to say toward that end in verses 9 and 10. But let me give us our third point first, and that is to consider what else is wonderfully ours in Christ. Look at it with me. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, <coughs> a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And here again, Peter goes back to the well of the Old Testament. This time, the language of chosen people is Isaiah 43, verse 20. And he is using this idea to, to draw together yet again that God has brought Gentiles into the chosen people of God. And what he is getting at here, you can tell that the priesthood idea is important to him because he repeats it 
And anytime you see something repeated in Scripture, you need to pay attention to it, except this time he talks about them being a royal priesthood. And this would have been a group of people that would have understood kings and kingdoms and so on. And so he is saying, listen, all these things here, there's a different kingdom and there's a different royalty. And now you guys are part of it through what has happened in Jesus. That's incredible. But that's not all. He talks about a holy nation. Again, they would have understood nations, Israel themselves. They would have known that story. Tiny little insignificant nation surrounded by these great kingdoms of the world. And he's saying that I have called my people out of all of this to be holy, to be set apart, to be devoted to me. And then also a people for his own possession, highlighting here that God owned them in a good and positive sense, that he was going to care for them, that this group of people had been raised up as his people to be a light to the nations, but also this is true for all of us. And he says that clearly, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light. So that that, that there, it's the, the purpose indicator. These things are true, chosen, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession, and they are now a people with purpose. And that purpose is to proclaim these excellencies. It's very interesting, this word that he uses here for proclaim, it could almost be translated in modern vernacular as advertise, that we are God's advertisements, that we are his influencers, that he has given us his product, and now he has sent us to the nations to tell about it, to show off with it. To point to people and say, listen, there is a better kingdom, there is a better way to live, there is meaning, there is hope, there is purpose, there is eternity, and you can get in on it. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, God will welcome you. Friends, what wonderful news. Are we about the business of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness today. Do you know how to do that? If not, friends, we want to help you. I had somebody talk to me this week and they said, hey, I'm praying about how to share the gospel with this person in my life. What an encouraging conversation that was for me. Because it shows me this person is thinking about that. And then we also got to kind of strategize a little bit about what might be the best way to go about that. Friends, that's the gift of community that is on display at Refuge Church. That you're not in this alone. That God didn't just send you out as the only person with the good news, but you got people around you that got their own struggles, they got their own stories, but they also got their own victories. They also have their own testimony that God has helped them share Jesus with other people. And if you need some help, they will help you share Jesus with other people. So friends, let's see this notion of proclaiming not as an individual, one soldier on his own mission, but a SEAL Team 6 working together in concert to take the good news wherever we can. 
Friends, doesn't that inspire you? Doesn't that make you want to tell somebody about Jesus this week to know that you're not alone in it? Oh, friends, let's be about proclaiming the excellencies of God. Let's lean on our brothers and sisters. Let's use the gift of community that God has given us here at Refuge to be able to share and proclaim wherever we go, in the workplace, in the marketplace, wherever it is. And let's see what only God can do. Now this last piece here, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That was their testimony. But isn't that also our testimony? Isn't that a picture of what it's like to pass from unbelief to belief? To pass from darkness into light? To be born again? Isn't that all of our story if our faith is in Jesus? Friends, that's the good news that we share. Look what God can do. And when we talk about this, it's just so clear and easy to see Jesus in this, isn't it? Because how did God make this people? How did he include us but through the full and finished work of Jesus? How did we go from being orphans and strangers but now being a part of his people through Jesus? How did we go from being a people that had not received mercy but now have received mercy? Through the full and finished work of Jesus. That living stone that brings together other stones. That ultimate high priest who now has a whole kingdom of priests. Friends, it's the Lord Jesus who makes all of this possible. Do you know him today? Have you come to the place where you owned up to your own sin and you placed it on Christ and have been saved? If not, friends, we want to help you in that direction. If you have, where do you most need this Jesus' help today? Is it to be reminded of the, the, the new identity and the new activity that we have before him? Or maybe it's something that we haven't even touched on directly here. Wherever we need the Lord's help, let's go to him now with a heart of praise, with a heart of thankfulness, but also with a heart of asking. And let's see what only God can do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word this morning. We thank you that when it goes out, we know that it will not return void. So we pray and ask for your hand upon all of us, that you would forgive us for our failures, that you would inspire us this week to be more faithful as you have been so faithful. Lord, we pray for those in our spheres of influence that need to hear the good news of Jesus. We pray that we would enlist the help of those around us and that we would pray and that we would share. Lord, we also pray for our church that we would continue to be about the work of proclaiming your excellencies to the end of the earth. Thank you for this time that we've had together. We pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.